0: What I want to do is talk about very specifically the period 1600 to 1625 in the context of the scientific revolution, because we're conveniently right in the middle of the beginning with Copernicus and some would say sort of the culmination with Isaac Newton. Um, The period from 1600 to 1625, however, although there is plenty in science going on, what I find interesting about that period is that it's more of a period of dissemination and testing the boundaries of what science can do, or as they would have said, what natural philosophy could do. And so what I want to talk about is mechanics, that is not the study of uh, mathematical study of machinery or forces, but rather mechanics as in car mechanics, people who actually did things with their hands, and their relationship to natural philosophy, and in particular, uh, mathematics. The key concept that I want to get across today is the idea of the mathematical practitioner. This is something which I'll go, to, uh, go through in a bit more uh, detail um, halfway through, uh, is one that came to currency as far back as the 1950s, but one which has gained some more currency more recently. Scholarship has picked up on these things in the last 10 years. Um, so what I want to do is convince you, or at least suggest to you, that the period that, we're, that the moments of change for this year is looking at is a really interesting dynamic, but not yet fully fixed period in the history of science. That is, it wasn't clear by 1625, which way science was going to go, that is, to our modern version of what that is. So the, the the broad end caps are Nicholas Copernicus on one end, who's dead long before um, this moment of change period begins. I want to point out that he is what I would call a typical humanist. He is uh, educated very widely in the canon of uh, higher education for the 16th century, early 16th century. Um, classics Medicine, Law, Theology, etc. He gets a job as a member of the church. He's a canon and administrator in Krakow, and he's doing teaching at the university as well. And his whole um, development of, of the revolution in astronomy, that is putting the Earth, at the, sorry, the Sun at the center of the universe rather than the Earth, um, comes out of what I would call a typical humanist university setting. They're debating it, discussing it. He finally publishes that at the end of his life, 1543. That's a whole other story. But by and large, he's synthesizing what's out there and proposing a new model. After our period, at the other end of things, you've got Isaac Newton, who most people will know his uh, famous laws of motion. Uh, I also want to point out that his other work, which was actually better received at the time, was on optics. That's 1703. Um, He has a slightly similar but also divergent history. He's a professor as well at a university, uh, Cambridge in this case, except that he's not religious. That is, they had to make a special... Um, dispensation to let him have a job because he wasn't going to take clerical orders. So in the hundred years between these two men, we get a shift in that regard. The other thing is that he has strong ties to both what becomes science, as we know it, through the Royal Society. He's president of that, third president, I believe, um, at the end of the 17th century. But he's also in government service. He's master of the Royal Mint. So there's a, a distinct shift, I would say, across our period from fully trained within the university, which is to say within the religious system, humanist, to, again, I would say uh, Newton is a bit of a humanist, but not in the classical sense, more of a polymath, discoverer, uh, inventor of natural philosophy that is doing the work, original work himself, um, but then also has these very worldly connections. It's those worldly connections that I really want to spend time investigating today. Now, in our period specifically, uh, I know that you heard a great deal about the men on the left, Galileo and Kepler. Uh, I won't spend time rehearsing their works. Uh, Let me just mention the man on the bottom right. uh, Had Bettina been able to be here, she was going to speak on anatomy, something that I am not very qualified to talk about. But uh, William Harvey on the bottom right, uh, who some would say discovered, others say interpreted, whatever, the circulation of the blood. And uh, some would say the foundations of modern anatomy is also active at this period. Uh, And then Thomas Harriot, who's an English scientist, natural philosopher, Uh, active in this period a little bit earlier and and through this period, dies in 1623, I believe, uh, is someone you've probably never heard about. And he's going to come up uh, in a few moments in relation to Galileo. What I'd like to say here is that there is a great deal of natural philosophical speculation, innovation, and creativity going on in this period. But what's important to recognize is that it's among a very small group of people. So Mario Biagioli told you about uh, the Kepler, uh, Kepler uh, Galileo correspondence, and I assume he mentioned sort of the network of correspondence. It's very well developed, but it's still a, really only a handful of people across all of continental Europe and Great Britain. Uh, what I find interesting is that, particularly in this period, the debates are really quite localized. It's not until just after our moments of change, by about 1630, 40, by 1650 anyway, that it really breaks out and becomes even wider. But what I'm going to talk about pretty much from here on out is how the people who weren't part of the inner circle of innovations in natural philosophy started to pay attention to it in a certain way. But it's that certain way which is worth paying attention to. So, the classic case of the moon. The telescope, I'm sure uh, Mario mentioned this on Monday. He's done some very good work on the telescope and instruments within Galileo's um, career and and the culture in uh, Italy. Um, the telescope's invented, discovered by the Dutch in the early years, possibly the late years of the 16th, but early years of the 17th century, and Galileo turns the telescope to the moon. and That's what he records he sees. That's 1609, if I c- recall correctly. Thomas Harriet in England, literally at the same moment, gets a telescope from the Dutch and turns his telescope on the moon, and that's what he sees. He records it in a manuscript. Now, we don't really know much about this because, or I should say, society doesn't know about this almost simultaneous discovery because Harriet never published a thing in his life, uh, at least on astronomy. But when you compare what these two men did, what the two men were looking at, that's the same moon at basically the same time through the same instrument. And yet it's a radically different interpretation of what they're seeing. Um, and sometimes when I have students, I, I ask them to uh, you know, go find a modern picture of the moon, and it's yet another way of seeing these sorts of things. What I wanted to point out is that you can't quite tell what we would say what reality was at the time through, for example, instruments in the case of the moon. They're still negotiating this. The point worth remembering from here on out is that natural philosophy at this time, which is what we eventually in a nice straightforward history of science says becomes modern science, um, is not exactly about recording truth. They're still wondering what that is or trying to debate what that's going to be, as you can see between the moons. But instead, science, and I'll just start using that term as if it's unproblematic, uh, in this period is about interpreting nature. And that's what they're trying to figure out how to do and how to do well. So what I want to do is take a sort of interlude and let someone else speak by showing about a, I think it's a seven or eight minute clip from uh, Ben Jonson's play The Alchemist. It was first performed in 1610, published 1612, so right smack dab in the middle of our period, And um, this scene, which I'll I'll set up and then we'll run, uh, is instructive of the kind of changing way in which people are interpreting the natural world at that time. Um, So the basic setup is, uh, what you'll see is there is uh, the doctor, a doctor of philosophy, in a house. And there's another character in the house who's known as Captain Face. uh, And the druggist, or drugger Abel, guy by the name of Abel, comes to visit the doctor to get some advice. So let's do that. Turn me off. Go to video. Go to VCR. <laughs> and see what's, li- what's happening late- lately in the things. Okay. So here's Abel arriving.
1: past be You know what i Okay.
0: So I'll tell you oops. <clears throat> I'll tell you the outcome or the context of that if you don't know the play in a few moments. But what I want to just focus on is that obviously this is a play about astrology and alchemy and the sort of things which we don't associate it with science at all. But what's interesting is in the discussion that uh, the Doctor and Face have there, there are also direct mentions of what we now take as canonical origins of history of science. So, for example, at one point, the Doctor says, bury a magnet on your threshold and it'll draw in the, the gallants with their spurs. Right. Well, in 1600, William Gilbert published De Magnete* on the operations of the magnet, which we now take, if you look in a history of science textbook, as one of the early canonical texts there. So they're playing with both of those sort of, what we consider non-science, or nonsense sometimes, and science, or what we consider hard science at the same time. At the same time, there are angels in there. There's astrology slash astronomy. I'll come to that in a moment. And also, I just wanted to mention that the last thing NAB asks for, Abel asks for, is to, to have the doctor look through his almanac. And that's going to come back uh, in just a minute. One of the strong movements throughout the 16th, and particularly in the early 17th century, is this whole movement uh, of astrology and astronomy and alchemy. The question is, how does that relate to modern science, or modern reason, as I'm putting it? One of the most famous people who uh, was published, possibly because he was expending lavishly and, and writing these, these well-illustrated books, was Robert Flood, an Englishman living in the Netherlands. He published a whole bunch of stuff, but the big one is his *Utriusque Cosmi, Maioris*, etc. And what he is trying to show in that, a very common belief at the time, is that simply everything is connected. The heavens are connected to everything happening on Earth in all sorts of different ways. And if you just look hard enough and investigate diligently enough, you will find those connections. So zooming in on his, uh, this is the universal monochord, as it's called, illustration from his book. Um, you can see here that, that the central thing is a musical instrument. And the various notes uh, running up there are, do we have a laser pointer? Can't reach that eye. Um, but they're, they're related to the, the elements. Terra, aqua, that is Earth, water, air, fire. And then going on up are the symbols for the planets, which if you're familiar with the astrological things are the symbols for the astro- astrological signs as well. So going up, you've got um, Mercury, Venus, Mars, the Sun. It's interesting. I never know if those are actually out of order. Um, Jupiter, Saturn, I missed something there, but anyway. Uh, oh, the Moon is at the bottom. So Moon, Mercury, Venus, the Sun, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn and then the fixed stars outside. They're trying to connect all these things together. We say in a rather strange way. They thought in an extremely profound way. So a couple more things just from Flood to show the kind of complexity that they were contemplating. The, the I'll say the alchemists, the, the astrologers. Uh, this is a modern redrawing of one of his plates. And you can see that up the top there, you've got the sun. And you'll notice that there are Hebrew characters at the very top. So there's a divinity represented there at this time. Um, God was always represented in Hebrew characters. Uh, Connections then from the outer stars down to the inner stars down to the human lying on the ground. And in all sorts of ways. If you could see the close-up of this, um, lots of effects. And the last one from him is his famous one, uh, the picture of how nature is integrated. And what you can see there is in the center is the Earth. Around the Earth are all the things that humans do. So if you zoomed in on the close-up, you'd see all the natural arts, poetry, liberal arts, all those sorts of things. Around that in the circles are the uh, planetary orbits. Around that are the fixed stars. And all those little dots, or these little tiny things are actual uh, angels, seraphim, cherubim, whichever direction that should go. So there's the biblical connection here. And you'll notice at the top, again, is that cloud with the Hebrew characters, the mind of God, which is connected by a chain, little hand, literally pulling the hand of natura, natura, nature. And her hand is pulling the hand of the monkey sitting on Earth, which represents humans. And you'll notice he's holding a globe, contemplating exactly what is going on. This kind of, it is mystical both in the amazing way, but also in the uh, profound way to these people in the early 17th century. Uh, attempts to connect the macrocosm and microcosm is an overall framing uh, concept for these people. And then finally, one other picture from a different textbook just a little bit later. Um, Here you can see the alchemist in his workshop. Uh, In the center you can see all sorts of musical instruments, scientific instruments, things related to number. That's going to be a key in just a moment uh, on the table in the middle. To the right, in that little alcove with the curtains drawn back is the alchemical forge, where it's, there's a little furnace there where he'd do all his alchemical experiments. And on the left is actually the sort of religious tabernacle where he's contemplating uh, the questions of divinity. And what they were trying to get at was, at the time, it was believed that there, are the, there is the word of God and there is the works of God. So nature is one side of the coin, and scripture revealed um, truths, whatever Um, on the divine side, is the other side of the coin. But the point is, they're the same coin. And many people spent a lot of time working on this. So, for example, a little bit before our time, although he lives into our period, John Dee, the famous, uh, sometimes you'd say, advisor to Queen Elizabeth. Sometimes you'd point out he was court astrologer. Uh, He also had all sorts of works on uh, angelology. I think that's a word. Studying of angels and revelations by angels. is a good example of the kind of hybrid person that I'm talking about. So now I'm going to uh, move fairly uh, strictly to the English scene, which I know better, but this holds uh, largely, and Paul can fill us in throughout the rest of Europe. Dee himself, the particular thing I want to focus on, also wrote a preface to the first English edition of Euclid, that is the ancient uh, geometer, the standard rules of geometry we all learned in grade school. And in his mathematical preface, Uh, he talks about the utility of mathematics. And that's what the handout is. If everybody got a handout, I'm not going to go through all of these things. But what it is is it wouldn't fit on one side of a page. So if you see the, the bit with the title, you'll see it basically continues on the back and the line connects through. What he demonstrates, or what he argues, I should say, is that mathematics is a very large hierarchy and it encompasses absolutely everything. So at the top you see things like or at the very left is the, the broad thing, the sciences and arts mathematical are either principal or derivative, his first breakdown. The principal ones are arithmetic and geometry, what we might call pure sciences, or pure, in this case, mathematics. And you can read all the, the uh, definitions of those, how those work. But then below, the derivative ones are either principle, arithmetic, or geometry, and there's various things that those relate to. But the thing I want to focus your attention on is on the back side. And these are the, um, again, sort of... Uh, proper names of the derivative arts, and he lists all these things from uh, perspective to astronomy to music, cosmography, astrology, etc., all the way down to thaumaturgic and archimastry. And if you look at that, what that really is are the practical arts, the hands-on sorts of things. But what Dee argues is these are all, at their core, mathematical. And this is where we get the concept of the mathematical practitioner. Mathematics, starting in the 16th century, seemed to take in all manner of things. Uh, you can see in a close-up here from Gemma Frisius's book uh, from the what is it, 1540, already showing that the mathematician deals with. And you can see on his desk there an astronomical globe, uh, a sundial, uh, compasses, dividers, uh, a square on the wall, maps laying on his table. All these sorts of things fall under mathematics. And so we have Dee writing the beginning of his preface to the reader. There is, gentle reader, nothing, the word of God only, set apart, which is so much beautiful and ador- beautiful it beautifieth and adorneth the soul and mind of man, as doth the knowledge of good arts and sciences, as the knowledge of natural and moral philosophy. So there's your natural philosophy. And a bit later, he says, many other arts also there which, are be- which beautify the mind of man, but of all other, none do more garnish and beautify it, but those arts which are called the mathematical. This kind of thinking is going to permeate are moments of change. And so oh, geez, preface. here you have a Flemish picture, uh, late, very late end of the 16th century, called the Measurers. And you can see all the different things that mathematics applies to, the real world sorts of things. On the floor, uh, stone cutting, geometry, leveling. Uh, there's a globe at the left. You'll notice there's a man teaching a young girl. I think it's a young girl on the left there. In the, behind him, there are sciences of weights. All sorts of things are relevant to the mathematics. And what happens is, the people who do these trades or tasks, which are known as known to be mathematical, become known as the mathematical practitioners. So what are those fields? Well, things like geography. Because geography deals with measuring sizes and angles and shapes of the earth, doing those counts as being a mathematical practitioner. Uh, from the large scale to the small scale, for example, late 16th century, early 17th century cartography falls under the the, uh, heading of uh, geography and therefore is mathematical. I should mention, I just wanted to mention one thing here. Um, The book on the left is the ancient work of Ptolemy on geography, but it's translated or updated, I should say, by Gerard Mercator, who's the man who gives us our our modern coordinate system of latitude and longitudes uh, and the map projection, which it's a distorted map projection, but it is our modern one. That comes out in the late 16th century, and everybody's starting to use it in the early 17th. Navigation is another art. So here we have, for example, Thomas Addison's book from 1625 on arithmetical navigation, focusing and emphasizing that it is arithmetic, not just rote memory or sail in that direction until you hit something and then figure out where you are. Now they're trying to do it prescriptively and arithmetically. And On a related note, surveying, which you kind of can think of as navigation on land. Some might make that argument. Here's one from 1610 on uh, phytographia, or phytographia, however that's said. Synopsis or epitome of surveying methodized. And if you go on down, you'll see it has the material, mathematical, mechanical, and legal parts. So it's focusing again on mathematics. Other areas, I just want to point out some things back on navigation. Uh, this is uh, Lucas Wagener's, uh 1588 Dutch name can't pronounce it too well uh, mariner's mirror and this is of course you've had plenty of lectures on exploration uh, and transoceanic uh, colonization um, part of that getting there reliably and getting back safely is navigation by the turn of the 17th century this is becoming an instituted art so for example there are there's a strong movement in London to start training, testing, and licensing pilots, navigational pilots um, coming out of, related to the Board of Ordnance and the Admiralty. In the area of surveying, uh, there's developments in surveying instruments, and I'll be coming back to instruments in a moment, but also major building work start taking place in the late 16th and early 17th century. On the right is Dover Harbor, which is rebuilt repeatedly at this point, trying to stop it from silting up again and again as it repeatedly did. The last two that I want to connect to, fortification. I don't have time to go into this, although it is one of my personal loves. Um, Good old-fashioned medieval castles turn into very geometrical Renaissance fortifications at about this time. And so every gentleman, military person, and frankly, a whole lot of other people who were just interested started learning geometry through learning how to design a fortification, even if they would never either design one or possibly ever besiege one. Applied mathematics shows up there. And on the other side, the attack side, is gunnery. Um, This is in particular interest of mine, and I'm going to focus a little attention at the end on this. Um, It was claimed that it was mathematical. Uh, I will argue in a few minutes that it's not the way we think of it, that is, ballistics that they're looking at. Uh, I'll speak to that in a moment. But to tie this all together, here's Galileo's first publication. Operations of the Geometrical Military Compass, which is the item hanging up on the right with the plummet. The the rock there is actually his lodestone uh, in the museum in Florence. Uh, The key, however, is that even Galileo, who we think of as our primary theoretician, started with the practical. Uh, He went into partnership with an instrument maker, made a bunch of these, made quite a lot of money, uh, and then shifted to what we consider pure natural philosophy. One side note before I do a, just some uh, a very rapid thing through questions of instruments is uh, looking at a particular one. Here, for example, is a 1623 edition by... Uh, I can't remember his name. It's on the other one. Uh, on the Sector and Radio, which are two mathematical instruments largely used for surveying. Here's a later edition. Same year, but later edition. And that you'll notice that they're destined for two very different audiences. In the end... Uh, what you get is a penetration by uh, mathematics through all of society. From wine gaugers doing their business uh, locally, wine comes into the port, they're trying to figure out how much is in there, right on up to, at least not in England, the Queen, but King Maximilian, for example, a little bit earlier in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, great things. Um, in the interest of time, let me just jump over that and just mention instruments. These proliferate like crazy in our period. Here, for example, on the left are gunnery instruments. Some more on the right, a compound astrological, sorry, ast- astronomical surveying and gunnery instrument at the bottom with the related book that was published to tell you how to use it. Some very pretty, books, uh, pretty uh, uh, examples here. Ast- astronomical, uh, an astrarium, I believe it's called. Uh, a compendium dial on the right for time telling as well as astronomy. A surveying device on the bottom. Globes, geography. Um, these are Not the earliest globes ever made with with modern geographical knowledge, but pretty close. And uh, interestingly, there's a close-up of Tycho Brahe, one of the other great practicing scientists uh, on these globes uh, by Bayou. And then just a couple other quick things. Uh, Pocket sundials, dippages, compendia, all sorts of of personal things that someone with not that much money could uh, get interested in in, in, and purchase. I'll jump over the... Let me just finish with the question of gunnery, which is the area where I work. Um, Gunnery, we seem to think, is an obvious mathematical art. You want to hit a trajectory somewhere, how do you do it? Well, what what they didn't do, interestingly enough, was use ballistic theory. What they did was they worked with tables, and it was very much almost a cookbook science. So you can think about, you could do cooking with high-end organic chemistry, but we don't. We get very nice results with Fanny Farmer or Joy of Cooking. The gunners, the, the practicing um, gunnery uh, um, instructors and practitioners were doing more the cookbook style sort of thing. They did thematize when they could. So, for example, there are numerous treatises where they tell you how to construct a geometrically proportioned ladle so you can put just the right amount of powder into your cannon. It's rather trivial in some ways, but that's what fascinated them. They looked as well at instruments individually, and these, I've argued become the badge of honor, as it were, for a gunner. I'm a gunner and an impressive one because I know how to use my gunner's rule and do this mathematically. And by the turn of the century, this early 1600s, what you get is gunnery becomes one of those places where it's not just practice. It's also study. And here you can see a a detail of a painting from the Siege of Antwerp. I think it's Antwerp in 1590, didn't write it down, 98. During the lull in the siege, they're debating a book. And one presumes this is something, one of the books coming out on gunnery as a mathematical science. So I should end, I imagine, very quickly, so we give Paul enough time. Let me jump over. I was going to speak about um, this fellow, Robert who's right in our period, a very fascinating fellow. He starts with translations, moves on to a really interesting book, if you're interested later, called uh, A Mathematical Appendix, containing propositions and conclusions, mathematical necessary observations, both for mariners at sea and for choreographers and surveyors of land, trying to tie it all together. He's very interesting from a uh, courtly point of view and patronage and all those sorts of things. I will skip over that in the interest of time, but you can see the great number of, of publications and the connection of my interest is he moves then into gunnery, even though he himself uh, didn't start as a gunner. Through this mathematical knowledge, he got appointed a gunner and then an engineer in the royal service. So here is just one little note on uh, um, a gunnery book to show you the connection or rather disconnection between uh, what I'm calling the mathematical practitioners and natural philosophy of people like Galileo. The Complete Gunner was published in 1620, a very practical, hands-on thing, very numerically, or what you might say, cookbook-style mathematical gunnery. But down at the very bottom, this is a 1672 edition, where they note at the bottom, to which is added the doctrine of projects, that is, projectiles or ballistics, applied to gunnery by those late famous authors, Galileanus and Torricellius. Uh, now rendered into English. So it's only at the end of the century that these mathematical things start to become what we would see as theorized and scientized. So, where does that leave us? If you look at the sciences from 1550 roughly to 1650 or 1675 or 1700, we see a nice straightforward progression. And if you pick up a History of Science book or a Western Civ textbook, they'll tell you that story. Our moments of change from 1600 to 1625, though, is a really bit of a contested area. They don't know, because it's very popular, whether they're going to go down the what we would call mystical alchemical path. They don't know if they're going to go down the natural, philosophical, theoretical, mathematical path. What they want to do is combine the two. It's going to take another 30 years, and and at least in England, I would argue, a civil war, to get those things separated. I think Paul will probably fill in the prehistory more than what I'm doing, but we'll see in just a moment.